And welcome to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, in-depth interviews with opinion makers and opinion shapers. And we do this weekly. We have newsmakers and authors on with us, scholars, intellectuals, innovators, people worth talking to and people worth your listening to. And it's my pleasure for today's episode to welcome someone who is well-known to many people, Dr. Lonnie Barback. Uh, and we're going to talk about intimacy and relationships and sexuality. And she's really a celebrated and world-renowned psychologist as well as an author and a pioneer in the research and study of human sexuality, intimacy and relationships. The three things are the triad or trinity, which I said we're going to be focused on. I once actually introduced her and then discovered that a, a number of other people had given a similar introduction as the person who had probably taught more women than anyone alive how to be orgasmic. I think that could probably be quantified and proven. She's also a major innovator in bringing women's erotica into the mainstream. Her first book, which sold millions of copies worldwide and was translated into eight languages, was called For Yourself, The Fulfillment of Female Sexuality. And she's also the author of a number of other books, including For Each Other, Sharing Sexual Intimacy, and The Pause, Positive Approaches to Menopause. I've just named a couple of them. Uh, she has been co-director of the clinical training in the UCSF Clinical Sexuality Program as a recipient of the American Medical Writers Association Award. And full disclosure, she's also a longtime friend of your genial and humble host. And welcome, Lonnie Barbeck. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you here. And um, I think I want to—my mother used to say, you should never talk about— religion, politics, or sex, but there are three things that are very interesting to talk about right there, to be sure. And uh, I was just thinking, though, about just discussing sexual, human sexuality, which has been something that you have done, as I said, pioneer work in. Somehow it doesn't seem to have the mystique that it used to have, sexuality in general. And I think we can blame the Internet for that. i just like your thoughts and reflections on this. Uh, and part of it is just the accessibility of sex, not only information, but just, you know, all the apps that are available to meet people and go on Tinder and just look from one to the other. Uh, maybe too available, one uh, could argue. Well, I agree that that is different. We didn't have all of that when I was young. We did have um, sexual liberation in the 60s, and there was a lot of experimentation. And uh, but we we didn't have access to so much information, um, innovation, you know, novelty, uh, pornography, you know, you know, all of the things that now you can just turn on your computer and it's all accessible, and you can meet people. It was harder to meet people to be sexual with. You might actually have to go out on a date and get to know them. Uh, well, that may not be necessary. Foreclose some of that, but it, it, it seems to me that maybe there's been a bit of a. I don't know if you can make these kind of generalizations. They sound a little facile, but a deadening, maybe an anesthetizing, somewhat. Uh, now you just, if you want something really odd and kinky or whatever it is, you just go to shop for it, look for it, it's there. Well, that reminds me of again back in the '60s when there were open relationships. Couples were experimenting with um, having sex with other people in what had been monogamous relationships. Relationships. And after a period of time, these relationships either ended or they went back to being monogamous. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a place for experimentation and trying things and novelty. And ultimately, I think the best sexual relationships are relationships that have a deep intimacy and that have a real connection. And, and I think most people end up with having that as an important part of their sexual relationship. Um, and, and most people say that's the most important part. 
I mean, I'll see couples and they'll come in and let's say the man says, I want more sex. That's our problem. And after we work on some various things and they get more intimate and they get able to talk and there's more touching and there's more connection. And if the frequency didn't go up, they are not as concerned about that anymore because they're really feeling connected at a deeper level. And the sex was what they were looking for to replace that. Well, you've prompted me to ask you about that old saw. Uh, it's a cliche, and like a lot of cliches, may have some truth embedded in it, but it's probably now maybe even less true. You know, men uh, have to give love to get sex, and women have to give sex to find love. And we're not even talking about same-sex relationships here, which have become even more uh, in number. But what about uh, that? Is that a pattern like the pattern you just suggested that, you know, you, you go from open experimentation to closure or you find that men want sex more than women? Well, uh, women want I, love more than sex? You know, over, um, if, I, if I looked at the total population, I would say that probably there's more male complaints about not enough sex than female complaints, although it doesn't mean that there aren't female complaints and there are plenty of them. So, you know, within a relationship, it, I just would say the frequency would go be distributed that way. Um, and, and that's more of what I see with, with couples. But you also see, you said, this paradigm of a movement from we're going to try things and we're going to experiment or I'm going to do that as a bachelor or a bachelorette to wanting exclusivity, wanting monogamy. I think that most couples find that um, they become insecure and jealous if their partner is seeing somebody else and they feel less safe and to be really open and intimate and vulnerable sexually, you need a sense of safety with that. And so some people need risk, and that makes them feel more turned on. But I think ultimately most couples feel that they can be most connected and open with somebody that they can trust, that they feel safe with. And that doesn't mean that they might not both together go and go to a swingers club or something like that. But again, it's kind of with communication, with the kind of sense of safety. Well, since you mentioned swingers, I remember there was a place, which I'm sure you recall, called Plato's Retreat, where people used to go and have open relationships and so forth. And what they found was, uh, these were people who wanted to be swingers, clearly. What they found was there was jealousy about, oh, you're going to the movie with her next week? Are you going to see this rock concert with him? I mean, the jealousy was of things outside of sex. Well, the jealousy is the connection. So if you could just have sex and not be at all you know, related in an intimate way, um, then it would be fine with most people. But most people find that as you get to know somebody and you get closer sexually, which connects you, that you start to feel closer in other ways. And then it becomes a competition. How come you want to go see that person instead of being with me? I thought we were only doing this on Tuesday nights. So, I mean, it, it just creates a kind of... Um, conflict that for some people they just find that they would rather do without it but you mentioned for example touching before and i mean being tactile and actually having people sensate and doing these kinds of things where it's not just the old wham bam thank you ma'am or sir or whatever uh in other words it's a process of 
maybe even some courting and wooing and that sort of thing, or a verbal process, that that's really the best way to build up sexuality and intimacy, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you, you get to know the person on a deeper level. And as I said before, you develop a sense of trust and you develop a sense of safety. And that's, I think, for most people, not everybody, but if you want a long-term relationship, those are important parts of them. If you want to just go out there and have fun and be sexual with a lot of different people and explore and experiment and have your work be the most important thing in your life, then there's other choices that you would make. Well, there's some people who just seem to be uh, not necessarily even serial in their relationships. They're just against the idea of commitment. Uh, in fact, talk about especially often about men being commitment averse or phobic about commitment. That's a reality, isn't it? Well, I think that there are people who feel that their life will be closed in. They won't have the choices if they get committed in a relationship. Um, and I think for some people that actually is true. So you have to know who you're relating to and if you're going to have the kind of openness and freedom that you want in a relationship, what's most important. And those are all things that you have to talk about. I mean, I really think that you know, intimacy is a lifelong conversation where you're really talking about your feelings. Um, otherwise, you have a business relationship. You know, who's going to take out the garbage and who's going to walk the dog? Uh, but to have a really intimate relationship, it has to be safe to talk about feelings. So when people come to you, and let's talk about your role as a therapist, uh, and they say, our relationship seems like it just doesn't have the vitality, the liveliness, uh, the desire that it had. And desire, I think, am I right, is kind of the chief problem, even more than money and kids and all the rest of it? It's a big problem. Yeah. And what happens often, is, especially if there's kids uh, in a relationship, is you start um, treating the intimate relationship as kind of the lowest priority. Work has a higher priority. The kids have a higher priority. Exercise has a higher priority. And the dregs that get left over go to your partner when maybe you don't have a lot of energy or it ha you have sex late at night and you know nobody's that enthusiastic. But if you think about what, what interested you in your partner in the first place, you know, you'd go out, you'd get dressed up, you'd take a shower, you'd have a nice dinner, just the two of you, you'd talk about things, and then you'd come back and you'd have sex. And it, you know, if that's kind of spontaneity that people are wanting, they're wanting somehow for this to happen without all of the preparation that they made when they were dating. You're talking about maybe wine and music and all that as well? I, I'm but... saying that that's a way of um, really elevating your relationship of making it a priority, of putting energy into it. I mean, the more energy you put into something, the more you get out of it. You don't put any, any if you had a job and you didn't put any energy into it, I mean, you wouldn't succeed at it. It would fail. What do you say to the person who says, I'm just too tired, you know, I have too much on my shoulders. Well, then you have to look at what your priorities are and what, what are you doing with your time? You know, how can you, how can you make a change? What can be done? You know, it's possible to have kids, it's possible to get a babysitter one day a week or take the kids over to somebody else's house and trade kids if you don't have the finances for that. But there are ways that you can, um, can, you can create some energy in the relationship. For example, uh, I have couples often where I say that once a week, one of you has to decide and you can alternate 
One of you has to decide something that you're going to go out and do together. It could be something new. It could be something that you both like. It can be anything, but something that you don't normally regularly do. So if you always go to a movie, which we don't do anymore, but maybe we'll go back to, uh, then find something else to do. And, and that's putting energy into it, because that's what you did in the beginning. You were getting to know the person. You were exploring new things. You tried things you never would try before. So what if the partner says, what, are you kidding? You want to go ice skating? Is that really what you want to do? You know. They might say that. But you can say, well, the deal is we talked to Dr. Barback, and we have to plan something. Let's try it. See, maybe we'll like it. Maybe we'll hate it. But actually, if you're open to it, you, you might just laugh a lot, which is great for the relationship, too. Well, we've got a question uh, from someone in Central Florida named Hershid. He wants to know, how can the, it's a big question, how can the male gender make a difference in expressing some of these factors you're speaking about? How can the male gender make a difference? Mean, how can you change men to be able to do I this? I think he's talking what... about uh, maybe the brotherhood here. Yeah, men as the gender. Uh, gender. Well, in a relationship, men also love women. And they really do want to make their partner happy. But they want to be able to do things that they feel they can succeed at. And so coming up with things that a, a man will enjoy doing and he can do with his partner or try, you can find that men are very willing if they think it will be successful and they really understand what is being asked of them, other than women just complaining and them not knowing how to make it better and so they don't want to do anything. So specific suggestions work well. Now, a lot of therapists, and I don't know how you work. I know I've heard wonderful things about how you work. But a lot of therapists immediately say, she's acting too much like your mother by, from your perspective, or he's acting too much like your father. He's not in, acting enough like your father or your mother. I mean, they get into these roles that are traditional in terms of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis in terms of the family unit and all the rest of that. How useful is all that? And how useful also, from your perspective, as giving therapy for many years with many couples and having a lot of success, how useful is going into all this analysis and therapeutic wisdom from catharsis and transference and all those ideal things? Uh, you know, you just asked me for a four-hour lecture. Um, well, let's, let's go to see, the chase. I'm talking about traditional notions of therapy. Well, I would say that the way that I work is that I work with couples and have them talk to each other in the therapy. Because what I'm trying to do is to enable them to talk about what they're feeling and what they want in a way that's not going to make their partner defensive, so that their partner is going to feel safe and open to this communication. And this way they can really hear each other and understand each other. If they don't repeat back what their partner's saying, half the time they're rebutting it in their head and they're not paying any attention. And so we're having two monologues that are going up and nobody's listening to each other. So the first thing is to help people to really understand each other. Then you look at some of the patterns in which people have acted the same way with their partner that they did with their father or with their mother. And they've gotten into habit patterns of um, maybe withdrawing if there's any conflict, not coming forward and saying what they want because their father would always put them down if they said anything. So it's about realizing how different this person is and starting to have different kinds of behaviors with them, trying out different ways of talking, of being, of what they talk about. 
But isn't there something in therapy they call a leap to health? You know, you recognize that you have to change your behavior and you change it, but it's ephemeral like everything else in life. But I mean ephemeral in a very limited sense. It's not so ephemeral because if you look at a relationship as a system, that if you if you put your hands together so that your fingers are, um, you know, intertwined in a particular way, if one person starts to make a change in the system and they start to interact in a different way, the whole system changes. So the partner has to change. And oftentimes one person will start changing first, and because they're not relating in the old way, their partner starts changing. And as their partner starts changing, that makes a difference in them. So you end up not sort of like an ephemeral flight into health, but a real change. It doesn't mean that they won't go back occasionally into a pattern that they've had, that was more automatic, but they'll recognize it and they'll have ways of getting out of it. But the change can also, tell me if I'm wrong here, because, and I don't know how this works uh, in any percent, I think it works different couple to couple probably, mm -hmm. but you know, um, a wife wants more freedom or a partner wants more freedom and decide to change and give more freedom. And then that freedom leads to realization that this relationship is not for me. I want to be more free or I want to you know, explore things on my own or I want agency, autonomy, whatever you want to call it. And suddenly you've got a whole different package. Well, you? it might be true. Yeah. It might be that in the relationship, one person feels like they are too confined and their partner is very jealous and is trying to confine them. And they, you know, the partner tries but doesn't get it and the one who needs more freedom might start to feel like i really do need to get out of this i can't make a change and that happens with some couples that they can't break their patterns so you take a chance sometimes so, when you change your behavior don't you well usually when you take your you, yeah, people don't know how is this going to work out where they do know that we'll right. just have a knockdown drag out fight if we do it the old way so you have to be open to what you don't expect because you don't like the way things are going now. So you're open to a future that's going to be different without knowing exactly how it's going to be different. But if you have trust and a, a loving, a love for the other person, uh, then you can hope that things will work out. And I will tell you that most of the time they do. And if I see a couple where if there's they love, really, uh, well, a lot of people love each other, but what they want from the other person is very different. So, mm -hmm. uh, and they're too different to be able to really be compatible. One person wants to come and go exactly as they please all the time whenever they want it. And the other person wants to be attached at the hip and to do everything together. So you wonder how they got together, but <laughs> after I'm seeing them, this is, this is where they are and they get more and more entrenched in their positions. And they start to realize that what I really want, I'm not gonna get from this person because who they are is so different. And they start to accept the other person as they are and realize that it's not that either one of them is bad or wrong. Uh, it's not the fault of another person. They can see that it, why it doesn't work. And then if they split up, it's really amicable because it's, it's, there's an understanding of it and an acceptance of it and a liking of the other person when you're not being blamed and being the villain. Well, how much of this blaming and the kind of conflict and arguing, like you were alluding to a few moments ago, has to do with issues of control and power? Well, where does that come from? Usually it comes from anxiety. If you feel anxious, 
and you don't feel like you, you're going to get what you need, then you try to control in order to get it. But if you can be with a partner and be able to hear what they want and understand why it's important to them and be able to accept who they are, then you can give it and they can accept it and are so happy that you've been so kind that they want to give you what you want. And that's the dynamic that I'm trying to work with. Got some more uh, people who want to join us here. This is Juan Robles from Mexico City. He says, how much do you think that long-distance relationships are affected by the Internet? Well, the Internet allows people to have a long-distance relationship in ways that they might not have been able to do it before. I mean, the Internet and uh, Zoom and FaceTime. and So you can have... Um, talk to your partner, see your partner, be more available to what's going on in your partner's life in a more regular way. Um, I, couples can have a sexual relationship over the air, certainly, that they could not have before. So you can keep a sexual relationship going because of that. Well, it's virtual sex. Virtual sex, right. right. Um, Sorry to make but that as, distinction. But as, as, as much sex as you can have when you have a long-distance relationship... Uh, you don't have to go out and find somebody else, in other words. So, uh, and it's more interpersonal. So I think that's, that it can help relationships in that way. But I think long-distance relationships are inherently difficult to maintain for long periods of time. Yeah, I so think that's generally true. making sure that you do connect, that one person does, you know, wherever they have to travel to, meet in the middle or meet at each other's place pretty frequently is necessary to keep it up. I want to thank those who are sending questions in here. Um, the next one comes from Eric Billings in Washington, D.C. He says, the type of open and honest conversation you two are having right now is very refreshing to me. Are couples more open about their feelings nowadays, or are they as withdrawn and prudish as they were pre-internet? Again, we're back to the internet. What do you think? Well, I, th I think feelings are very personal, and you feel very vulnerable. So... I don't think the internet has to do with your ability to be able to talk to your partner openly about things that are very personal, that you feel scared about, that you worry about. Um, and to have your partner, instead of saying, oh, that's a silly thing, why are you worried about that? Or oh, are you gonna talk about that again? Or any of these things that are dismissing or judging, you know, that's, you know, nobody worries about that anymore, are, are the ways that you can get uh, cause difficulty and, and lack of safety in a relationship. So you want to be able to hear your partner. You want to be able to understand your partner. You want to ask more questions of your partner if you don't understand it. It makes absolutely no sense instead of going, oh, there you go again. Asking more questions about well, why do you feel that way? Well, what what happened? Where 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 did you get this from? What where, what what do you think about when you know you feel anxious or whatever it is? Uh, that's what makes the connection. That what that's what makes the safety, and that allows people to be open. And then you could talk about sexual things as well if you can do that, because you don't have to worry about your partner saying, "Oh my goodness, you think that? You want to try that? I can't believe it." Well, how do you so, move past that? I mean, uh, what's the that that you move well, past? No, I mean, I, I I happen to see recently. Um, House of Hammer, which is about Armand Hammer and going all the way back to this patriarch who's 
sort of a Rupert Murdoch figure and in four generations of very disturbed men who are all patriarchs of great wealth, going back to the billionaire who was the oil tycoon. And what you learn from the youngest one, who was a movie star and very handsome, was he wanted uh, women to be branded by him. He wanted to um, bite them and uh, do all kinds of things. And most of these women felt, well, if this is going to make him happy and because he loves me and I love him, I'll do this. But you would assume in many cases people just don't want to do some of these things that their partners ask them to do. Yes. And then where do you go? Well, there may be things that you don't do that your partner wants to do. I, I want to go jump out of a parachute that doesn't, you know, out of a plane in a parachute. My partner, and I want my partner to join me. Well, maybe my partner doesn't want to join me. Um, you know, so there's going to be lots of things that you may not want to do together. But there's an openness to hearing it and then being able to say, but that's not for me. So you get back to communication and so many of these... Uh, communication is the essence. As I said, yeah. it's a lifelong conversation. That's what intimacy is. And yet people come in to see a therapist and they're very guarded and they have to defend the, their psychological turf. They have to feel their side is right. And, you know, they have kids involved in this in terms of sometimes taking different sides and all of the rest of that. It's pretty complicated. I mean, I don't envy you for... I'm, I, but there's a way in which if you have... You just have to trust me on this. If you have two people talking to each other, then I'm not the judge of right and wrong. I'm saying, oh, it's your problem, or this is going on. But there, and I can help them to explain what they want to the other person. And I can help them learn to ask questions about why they feel this way. They, once you feel understood, most people want to be understood. I mean, it's the most important thing is to be understood in a relationship. And they want to be understood by you, too. As Absolutely. A well, that's my job. But then you get into these, oh, you side with him because he's paying the bills. And, you know, don't, don't you hear that I don't, sort of thing. I don't side with anybody. No, I'm not side you personally. With, I'm but I therapist. side with the relationship. I mean, my I'm on the relationship side. So, I, I mean, there may be something that one person's contributing to, to the problem in the relationship. I'm, I'm going to tell them what I see them doing. But that's not, I mean, I'm not judging them. I'm just saying, if you, you know, how is that working for you? You know, <laughs> what's happening when you, when you say that? What what's the response you're getting? Is is that working? How, try this. But you may have someone who's going into therapy and being very adverse to it. You know, doing it just because the husband or wife is insisting on it. That's right. Then they have to see that there's a difference. So they may come to the first session, really not feeling like they want to do it and they're just being dragged along. The first thing I ask them is, what is your goal for our work together? And if they don't have a goal, I'm going to ask them, well, what would you want? You know, and I'm going to have to come up with something because if they don't have a goal, they don't want to be there. And if they don't want to be there, I'm not going to be able to work with them. Well, I asked you before about, you know, we'll go to some more questions in a moment about how traditional therapeutic methodology works. Uh, be interested in hearing your thoughts about that and exploring that a little more with you. But also, there are all these other things now. Um, one hears about the efficacy of, for example, different kinds of plants, cannabis, for example. You know, all of these different meditation. I have so many things that have spread out the world of therapy in couples and relationships. What do you find in cognitive therapy? What do you find really has is efficacious? You know, for different people, different things are are more helpful. So for somebody, uh, maybe I have someone who has serious ADD and they have really trouble calming down enough to be able to talk to their partner. Uh, maybe exercise is really important. Maybe meditation is really important. So you have to figure out 
what the issue is, and there may be an approach that is better or less helpful to them. And sometimes people have to kiss a number of frogs before they find the right therapist with the right approach for them. And I, I, I think it's really important for people not to stick with therapy if they don't feel like they're part, if the therapist doesn't understand them, or if they don't feel connected, if they don't feel understood, if they don't feel like the person, the therapist likes them, uh, whatever it is that they should um, look for a therapist where they feel, and they, then they should notice that they're getting help, that they're feeling better, that they're handling things a little differently. It's hard to find a really good therapist and someone that both people in a relationship want to work with and trust and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, even someone who has an extraordinary reputation that you've been building all the years and everything, there's just people don't fit or won't work with you or don't like to work with you. Right? Absolutely. I will, I will recommend that most people who are coming into couples therapy meet with a few different therapists. Shop around? Shop around. Have a session with each of them. See how they work. See how you feel at the end of the session. Both of you talk about it. I mean, already we're doing therapy by having them talk about it with each other. And then pick one to work with. I had one, a friends of mine actually, that I referred to about three or four different couples therapists. And they went to see each one of them. And at the end of it, they didn't need therapy anymore because each one of them had something else to offer them. They weren't in real serious trouble anyway, but they had something to offer them. And they learned what they needed to know from each of them. By the end of it, they felt like, well, that this is pretty good. <laughs> Here's Chad Lafarge from uh, Columbia, Missouri. He says, how long, excuse me, how have you found that the past two years of virtual quarantine have affected couples and especially couples isolated together? Any sense of how... Uh, well, for some couples, they've gotten more connected. They've needed to rely on each other more. It's been a very positive experience. For other people, they could not get enough distance. They had to do more things together than they were comfortable doing. Um, they had to make more compromises than they than felt good. So it was more difficult. So it affected different couples differently, I would say. Um, it, it tended to uh, exaggerate whatever the issues were there in the first place. The isolation certainly could be deleterious in many instances. In some cases, I've heard of people who are closer together and had more intimacy as a result of being together all the time. Yeah, that's what I said. Yep, yeah. it can. There's different strokes for different folks. We're not going to find an answer that's going to work for everybody. So, do you know um, how? Getting back to just the traditional nature of uh, of the therapeutic process, um, a lot of it's just catharsis, isn't it? You're, you're you're going through a kind of purgation. You're getting a lot of the stuff out there, just getting it out there, getting ridding yourself of it viscerally. Not for couples therapy. Couples therapy does not work that way, does no, it? No, it won't work well that way. I mean, yeah. there's I when I talk about, for example, uh, the difference between thinking thoughts and feelings. Because if you can share your thoughts, you know, I, I think that you don't love me. Well, that's not anything about, or I feel that you don't love me. That's not a feeling. It's a thought. I'm telling you what you think. I'm not telling you about me. And as long as people are telling the other person about them, they're going to get defensive. So the first thing is you, you want to have, and you can argue about thoughts all day, but you can't argue about your feelings. You know, I'm, I'm feeling hopeful. I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling... All of those feelings are where you want to go. I feel feeling word. The problem is anger, which is a feeling. 
only if what anger does really is it's meant to make you safe. You've been hurt. So you push the partner away and you built a wall up and it's not going to get you to intimacy. So I always have people look under anger, resentment, exasperation, impatience, all of those kind of words that are separators and look for the more vulnerable feeling. You know, what was it? You said you felt angry, but what happened before that? What's the deeper feeling? You usually be feeling, I feel unloved. I feel, um, I, I feel unimportant. Um, that's, you know, you'll get to something that's deeper in the person. I feel depressed. I feel, and the, and the anger is a cover. So if you're not expressing the anger, which is pushing the person away, and you're being vulnerable and the other person can hear it, they feel invited in as opposed to pushed away. And so the sessions just go much better. And yet what you just described is almost a paradigm for so many relationships, that defensiveness and that feeling of, you don't love me, you don't pay attention to me, you don't care about me. Mm -hmm. And so I All to... of them, one person telling the other person how they feel, which is inherently disrespectful. As soon as I'm telling you what you feel and what's going on with you, as I said, you're going to get defensive because how am I the expert on you? Don't tell me what I feel. You That's don't right. know what I feel. That's right? exactly right. And yet there is often that uh, intuitive sense that I know what you, I've been with you all this time, therefore I know what and you I feel. And I love that with couples <laughs> because if they, instead of say, I know that you feel this way and I have them ask it as a question, they're often really surprised at the answer they get. So then they start getting more open to learning about how the other person really does feel. And just because something may have been true in four occasions doesn't mean it's true for this occasion. Mm. Uh, so they're making patterns in order to feel safe in the relationship. And I'm working with them to treat each issue as a unique and individual one. So they have to talk about it. How much of a pattern is shame and what needs to be done about really diminishing it because it's toxic in many relationships and really affects them in a major way. Yeah, well, shame is, is your individual feeling. I feel bad about myself. And you can't have your partner fix that. They can tell you a million times, no, you're really beautiful. No, you're really, you know, pleasant and, and I love being with you. It's not going to necessarily change that person's feelings about themselves. And I think that is more of an individual therapy issue. It's useful to be able to talk about it and to be able to know about it. But if you want to make changes in that, couples therapy is, is not the appropriate vehicle. It's more individual than relationship therapy. I think yeah. that's what it is. Um, here's uh, one of our listeners from Washington who wants to know from D.C., Dr. Barbeck, I would guess your role as a therapist exposes you to a lot of stress emanating from the couples. Do you risk uh, absorbing some of that stress? If so, do you have a favorite uh, de-stressing regimen? Uh, Thanks for I've the been doing this a long time. Yeah, that's a very good question. And it used to be an issue. I, I would say that I've somehow learned how to take in what a person is feeling in order to understand what it's like almost to be them and then to let go of it. So the trick is to be able to take it in and let go of it and not carry it around. Now that doesn't mean that if I think that some couples are in real distress, that I'm not thinking about them afterwards because mostly what I'm thinking about is how, what can I do in the therapy to deal with this particular issue? 
how can I approach this in a way that might be different? And I don't think that I'm taking it on emotionally. I'm definitely taking it on intellectually. And yet you're maybe using a kind of exercise with yourself that could also be helpful to some of your patients. I mean, letting the stress go the way you just described, because the stress creeps into the relationships too. Mm-hmm. And that um, is something that I have to work with people on. Yeah. So on that, how to let their partner, if they're stressed out, to be stressed out without having to save them, to to feel like they can be available for what their partner wants, but not feel like they have to do something unasked. Like one of my adages is, don't work till you've been hired. Mm-hmm. So if your partner hasn't asked you for something, don't go in there figuring it out to try to fix them and make it better before they say they want that, because half the time they're not ready for it if they haven't. It's also yes. very common, particularly for men, thinking they can fix these things, isn't it? It's it's very common for a lot of people. Yeah, I assume gender is not necessarily all that specific, but it's often mm-hmm. associated for whatever reasons. Yeah, with- well, and the same thing in terms of the continuum that we talked about earlier, that you find that um, men are more solution-oriented, and they want to figure out a solution to whatever the problem is, and women are more uh, feelings-oriented. They want to be understood for what's happening and they don't need the solution they need the feelings first and then maybe the solution afterward so but it goes both ways i mean i it's just i would say the distribution would be more in that direction how important in relationships is what i would call role playing um i'm thinking of um one of my favorite plays by harold pinter which is not all that well known where this couple seems to have a good marriage because they They play different roles. He saves her, you know, he's a fireman and she's in a trap and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it seems like that sort of thing, at least ideally, could really liven up a relationship. Uh, He did it right. A lot of people like role-playing. A lot of people have nothing to do with role-playing. Some people have fantasies, sexual fantasies. Other people don't have sexual fantasies. They are focused more on what their body is feeling. Uh, Some people like something where there's an imbalance in power. Uh, the partner who's just much more aggressive, some people who don't like that. I mean, it's so individual, whereas an individual in our sexual beings, as we are in our hairstyles or the clothes that we wear, I mean, we're all each unique and individual in that way. And the good thing, I think, about having um, sex before you decide to be committed is that you can find out if you match sexually as well as, you know, politically and, you know, in, in other kinds of ways. There's also that old um, saw about people matching sexually and before they commit and then after they commit, especially if it's a marriage, nuptials, things seem to change. I mean, this is a pattern that at least people have talked about since who knows how ever. Well, sometimes it changes. I've got the ring on my finger now, you know, that old saw, that old cliche. Yeah, I, I don't see that so much anymore. Um, when, when I see that, it's because the marriage has had certain, partners had certain ideas of what marriage means. And uh, it, th- those don't match. And so um, I'm trying to think of one for an example. Okay, in a marriage, even though we each did our own laundry before we were married, now you do the laundry. And it's kind of just that's the way it is, and that's the way it's supposed to be. 
uh, and there's kind of roles that are taken on maybe from parents or expectations about marriage that don't fit. And then there is a feeling of, um, you know, of, of being disrespected, of not being important, uh, of not having a voice that start to happen. And that gets in the way of the sexual feelings. Question from uh, Alton in New York City. Thanks for the question, Alton. Wants to know if you have any suggestions on how to persuade a partner who's very skeptical or afraid of therapy to actually feel comfortable with the idea of going to therapy for the benefit of the couple. Uh, all you can do is you can say, this would be important to me. I would really like for you to try it. And if it doesn't work, you know, if, if you go through three sessions and you don't feel that it's helpful, then I will agree with you because it won't be helpful. But would you do that for me and for us? Because I think it will be helpful. Would you be willing to try it? How so much... it's, it's trying as an experiment without it being a lifelong commitment because I think people can worry, well, what if, what if you know, this therapist could tell me that, um, that there's something wrong with me. I might find out about something about me that I'm not prepared to learn about. I don't want to explore my psyche. Uh, there are also people who don't believe in therapy or are afraid of therapy. I yeah, mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. May, may have never had a good therapist. Or don't want to pay for may therapy. Have, yeah. May, yeah, may have never seen it work for, you know, may have had a parent who was in therapy and never felt that it worked. So, so any uh, sage advice on how to convince or persuade a partner who's just very adverse to it? You can't... Um, I mean, you're saying just try it, and, and yet people yeah. can be very adverse to even trying it, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I definitely, I think that if the other person loves, if my partner loves me, and I say, this is one thing I would really, really appreciate, and it's really important to me to try it. And I promise you, if you don't, if you, if you don't think it's going to work after three sessions, you, you don't feel comfortable with it, then I will respect that. And I would like to have a voice, and I'd like you to try it. There's no downside to it. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what about when a relationship is, is troubled? Um, should the first thing maybe, let's say there's, um, there's a lack of, uh, of desire again, which seems to be commonplace. Should men test their testosterone? Should women test, you know, physically uh, before even maybe going to a therapist? And well, sometimes out? it could be a physical issue, especially yeah. as we get older. So I would say that that would be very useful. Yeah. Um, but, but most of the time, lack of desire is based on the relationship. So I, I would say getting a physical lack of erections, for example, getting a physical is really important. Um, you know, with menopause, women start to often lose their sexual interest, their libido, because they have less testosterone than they had prior to menopause. Um, there's all sorts of physiological changes that will affect your sexual relationship. What's positive about menopause? Because it has so much negativity attached to it. It's getting old, and again, old is, in most people's minds, not good. Well, for women, often menopause is the beginning of their life. So before that, if they were married and they had kids and they were taking care of their husband, they were taking care of their kids, they had maybe their job as well, they had all these, they have fewer obligations. It kind of becomes more of their time. And they start exploring new capabilities. 
sometimes women get jobs that never had them before. Um, they start maybe exploring friendships in ways that they hadn't before and becoming closer to uh, friends than maybe they felt like they could before. So there's lots of ways that it can be a very positive approach. And also the positive approaches to menopause and perimenopause were, you know, testosterone cream and, you know, other kinds of, you know, herbs and things that you could take or do or that help you solve things like hot flashes and on, on all the other things that go along with perimenopause. So, Well, an appropriate question here. Uh, uh, a listener wants to know what value does personal time have in a relationship? I think personal time is essential to people. I mean, it's togetherness is essential and personal time is essential. And if there's too much personal time and not enough connection, I mean, not enough, enough interaction and being together, there won't be a significant connection. And if there's too much togetherness and you don't feel like you can be your own self and have room for that, then there becomes defensiveness and resistance in the relationship. You can find some real difficulty quantifying that because for what one person is, I want to spend time in my cave alone, to another person is, you're shutting me out. That is a huge problem in, yeah. in, in couples that I see is yeah. working out. And the first thing is to know that that's a difference. It's not like you're being shut out. It's being a personal need of that person to have more alone time. But then if the person who wants alone time always gets the alone time, the other person doesn't get the connection that they need. So what I'll usually have is have each partner give the other person what they need. So in other words, I need the um, togetherness time. So I give my partner the alone time. I make sure that my partner has the alone time that he needs. My partner, make, because he needs the alone time, he makes sure that I get the togetherness time that we need. And so we all, we both become aware of what the other person needs and offer it rather than try to keep them from getting it. It just changes the dynamic. And you're listening to Gray Matter. I'm Michael Krasny talking to Dr. Lonnie Barback. Um, if you want to find out more about Gray Matter, just go to graymatter.show and we invite you to be part of this growing community that we have uh, in the digital world. In fact, welcome your involvement. Uh, and you can find out not only about past episodes, but you can find out how to become a member of Gray Matter. Um, what about, um, I know you've done a lot of exploration of Buddhism, and so I'm interested in finding out, we hear a lot about mindfulness, and we, in relationships, the value of studying, say, Buddhism as a discipline, I don't mean necessarily as a religion, because it's not necessarily a religion. Right. There's some very important philosophical underpinnings for Buddhism that have certainly colored my work as a, a therapist. You know, one of them is not knowing is so much energy is put into trying to predict the future and figure out how to make it work and as opposed to allowing things to unfold which which means that you're more present in the moment listening and you're more aware of what's happening and you have more resources to apply to the situation that's going on at the moment as opposed to trying to make it all work out and then when it doesn't you get all stressed out and you know and you feel all stuck so i think that that's really important. The whole issue of, of being in the moment and being connected with your partner is very important in terms of um, 
a, a relationship. Feeling that sense of being in the moment, that's all that like gestalt stuff, uh, isn't it, psychologically? Yeah, it the is. The here and now. The yeah. here and now. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. Also, you know, medit what meditation can do for people is it can quiet their reactivity. So, meaning that if something comes up, they become better able to not react impulsively or excessively um, automatically. They, they are able to take a breath. They're able to pause for a second and come up with a, a much more useful response. And that's helpful for couples. Another question from, uh, well, about communication again. Uh, how do men get more respect from their partner? Respect is essential. Earn respect is actually Earn. the way it is. Well, you know, respect is absolutely essential. If you don't respect your partner, you shouldn't be in the relationship because it just undermines everything. So you really do have to respect your partner. You have to understand all of the positives uh, that they bring to the relationship. And, you know, can we our strengths... respect a little bit? Because you can be very ambivalent. You can respect somebody you love and then feel a well, loss of respect uh, and an ir well, you can, inability to resist being not unrespectful. Well, I think you can respect the human being that you're with, which doesn't mean that you necessarily like everything about them. Okay, that's well said. So, yeah. so I think that, that the, the underlying respect is essential. And the things that you don't like, I mean, there's, there's an upside and a downside to qualities. For example, you have a person who's a workaholic, and they find this partner who's just so free and spontaneous and it takes them out of their workaholic world and really lightens things up and then they find out that they can be so irresponsible they're just not taking care of paying mm. the bills and they're not doing the other practical things and that's because when you have a very you have a, a strong strength uh, it's likely to have an equal and opposite weakness so appreciating the strength for what it is and being able to fill in for the weakness as opposed to criticizing the partner for that will help the relationship. You know what else I think helps relationships? Tell me if I'm uh, off base on this. I, I don't know what kind of uh, percentage to give it or what kind of importance to give it, but levity and humor. Absolutely. Yeah. Being able to laugh at yourself, being to laugh at things that you've just done with each other as opposed to getting upset with the other person. I mean, laughter is, that's one of the, uh, the other things I've learned about Buddhism is not to take everything so seriously, you know, that there are things that are just, I mean, seven things went wrong today. And I've really started laughing because so many have gone wrong. <laughs> Can we get a definition of intimacy? It's one of the most overused words, I think. Uh, how do you know if you're being intimate with your partner? I, I, I'm not even I, talking about sexually. I mean, no, no, I, I, I think intimacy is about uh, really feeling safe to express your vulnerable feelings and to have them heard. Mm. And when that goes both ways, that kind of connection is what I would call intimacy. That means openness, that means lack of fear, or at least putting the fear aside. Yeah, it does. That. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can remember early in my relationship with David, I would, uh, I very much would, if I was upset about something, I would just go off by myself, go to my room, leave somewhere else, do something and, you know, handle it. 
and I realized that that was not working. And so I remember one night that was pivotal where I had gone to my room over something that I was, which I can no longer remember what it was. And then I thought, I have to go downstairs and talk about it. I have to put one foot in front of the other and do what I never do that I know is the right thing to do. And I just have to overcome all of my internal obstacles to do that, which I did. And we had a great conversation and resolved it. Well, it was, it was. as long as you're talking personally, um, you lost David, uh, your partner. Uh, it's almost to the day, a year. And, it's our anniversary yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, again, can't express enough to you of my sympathy. He was a wonderful man who I had the great fortune of knowing, and I cherish memories of him. But, you know, Biden said something today that really stayed with me. Um, he said, uh, the cost of love is grief. It's axiomatic. It's just true. You know, if you give your heart, you immediately uh, are opening yourself up to the susceptibility of loss. And because mortality is just what we can't avoid, any of us. So any anything that's that you've learned through this terrible loss that you've experienced over the last year? Well, one thing that I, I, I mean, I had a premonition, not that anything was wrong with David. I mean, he was perfectly healthy. He had a cerebral hemorrhage while swimming laps. So, I mean, he was, he was fine. Uh, but I started to feel like I need to express my love to him. And I started to do it all the time. And when we made love, I started to think about, you know, this could be the last time. I better remember this. I mean, because we're not young chickens here. So, uh, you know, it, I really felt like that connection was kept up. And uh, the one thing I didn't say in the memorial that I feel is really important is that if you are with someone now, to really appreciate what you have, that it won't always be there. And to, you know, really just to think about it and to, and to hold it. And I think that has helped me to, to handle all of this because it's not that I don't feel the loss, it's that I feel like I deeply appreciated the relationship when I had it. Well, that's again, being in the moment and, and cherishing mm -hmm. the memories that can bring you into the moment and make you feel again right. the loss, but also mm -hmm. feel the beauty of whatever it was, you mm -hmm. know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, have you um, tried to convey that to your patients, that importance of being within the moment? Is that something that's almost automatic for you as a therapist? Yeah, that's, that's, it's very important. It's part of the, um, the glue that I'm trying to stimulate in their relationship, you know, to try to have them feel more connected and to uh, really listen to each other, to really appreciate what the other person brings to the relationship and to uh, let them know. Oftentimes we think about, oh, I'm so happy that you took out the garbage tonight, but we wouldn't say it, you know, because, well, it's their job to take out the garbage. No, it's, it's like appreciating each other often, letting each other know often um, makes a huge difference. But often it is a division of labor and responsibilities and taking out the garbage. And... It doesn't matter if they've done it then you can appreciate that they've done it, even if it's their job. Even if you go and get a paycheck every week, you can appreciate that they worked hard. You can appreciate what they do for you. But you had the glue. Mm -hmm. And what do you say when you have a couple come in and one member of the 
I just don't think I love him anymore. Or I don't think I love her. Uh, Same-sex, heterosexual, whatever, you know. person feels that love, which was the glue, is just not there like it was before. It's not only the intensity. Often it's just, where's love gone, isn't it? Well, sometimes enough um, conflict and difficulty, uh, it's like too much water has gone under the bridge. You just can't get it back. And that does happen with some couples where they are just, they waited too long to come into therapy. So they were already out the door. And it's, it's much better to come into therapy when you're thinking you have real problems and dealing with it at that time than coming in when you are, are talking about divorce. But don't you have people who come and see you because maybe one of the members of the partnership uh, feels... I want to save this. I have too much of an investment. Like you said, it's almost like a corporate type of thing. Uh, I don't want to leave this for the children's sake or whatever, but internally it's gone. Whatever it was, it's gone. Well, that will become clear as we work together. So if it's, if it's really gone and there's, they, and they don't, they don't feel that the effort that they would put in would be able to bring anything back. So they don't really want to put in the effort to do that. But if you've put in the effort and you've tried things and you feel like, I still don't feel like it, it again, it becomes clear that this relationship is not going to work out. But then both people understand it and understand why, and they can separate much more amicably. Do you have to to make a relationship sustainable? And I, you and David, in fact, wrote a book uh, together about... Going the Distance. Going the Distance, which yeah. I really thought was a fine book. Um, but you have to kind of be selfless in some ways. Is that necessary? Well, yeah. There's times when you do what the other person wants to do because it's really important to them and much more important to them than at that moment than doing what it is that you would prefer to do. And it alternates, because in a good relationship, there's give and take. So sometimes I'm going to get what I need, and I, and I know that that's going to happen. So it doesn't feel like, oh, every time I give in, I'm never going to get anything. Because it always goes in one direction. The thing you see most of all as a therapist is people say, my needs aren't being met, or I'm, I'm not, not able to give what he or she wants in terms of That's me. often the issue, yeah. but sometimes the person doesn't know. You know, I don't understand what you mean by you want me to be more communicative. I don't understand why you keep telling me I'm not doing something right. They don't, they, it's almost like sometimes they need to learn this, to speak the same language. Well, they need to learn how to be communicative. It's well, it's, right. it's almost like they don't speak the same language. Yeah. They don't understand what their partner's talking about. So at sometimes I do play the role of translator, but I try not to translate because I'm trying to get them to speak each other's language. Yeah. How does that work? How do you make people... How do you translate as a therapist for them what they need to understand? Uh, I can help them say, you know, are you feeling sad? Are you feeling worried? Are you feeling distressed? Are you trying to tell your partner this? Are you, you know, I'll just put it in other words. And sometimes I can take a long rambling something or other and put it into a succinct sentence. And the person will either say, no, that's not it, which is great because then we know what isn't what they're not trying to say and they'll get clearer or they say yeah that's it and then i have them tell their partner well there's so many roles that a therapist has to play <laughs> I it's mean, complicated yeah. being a couples therapist because you've got one person and their history and their trauma and what they've 
their needs and their individual, you know, attributes. You have the other person with all those same things. And then you have the system of the way the two people fit together and how those interact and affect each other. So uh, I want to conclude with this. Um, you did something among many other accomplishments as an advisor to a game called Happy Couple. Right. Um, so what, what makes for a happy couple? I mean... Uh, you know, it came... I, Okay, we asked, it was a game app, like um, the Newlywed game, but you did it on, a, on your phone and you got choices of answers and you tried to match it with the understanding what the other person would have answered, not necessarily that you're going to have the same answer, but understanding your partner. So what happened is that when couples had mismatches, they would talk about it. So they ended up learning things about each other that they didn't know or that they, you know, they hadn't ever talked about before. It made a difference just to see it in text. It just to be able, it just stimulated the conversation yeah. for them to get to know each other better. And I think it was like 87% of the couples said that after six weeks of playing the game, their relationship got better after, as a result of playing the game, not just six weeks, but because they felt they had played the game. And it was because they were talking and they were learning about each other and they were having interesting conversations. Is the app still out there? No, it, we got... It was underfunded. It's still there, but we need funding. So. And one actually last question that just reminded me of: <clears throat> you were also involved early on with erotic films for women uh, and ways of capturing women's attention with respect to erotic literature and erotic films and so forth. There really, is a difference, isn't there, in terms of what stimulates and what uh, provokes? For the most part, you know, men are more visual in their sexual stimulation, women are more um, emotionally, the emotional connection is a very important part of their stimulation. As I said, this is on distribution, I would say it goes that way. Is it as basic and, as the old joke, you know, the old joke where the guy says a woman has to be snuggled and cared for and cosseted and praised and given gifts and everything. Man, show up with beer naked, I mean, <laughs> or something along those lines, you know. It, it has to do with, for women, it's not, it's not seeing their partner often that is what is the turn on. It's feeling the emotion being cared for and having the emotional connection. Talking before they make love is often an important part for women, where it may not be for men. Um, and again, I'm using these categories as it, it, it really is a distribution. It's a whole spectrum. It's, it's a yeah. whole spectrum. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but that's, you know, and, and I did this because when I did this, which was like in the early 80s, there was pornography that was all oriented toward men. And there was nothing that was out there for women. And one of the ways that I had women learn about orgasm was through masturbation, and they weren't feeling turned on. And I thought, this erotic, this pornography, they said, this doesn't appeal to me, you know, and I don't fantasize. What can So I had to come up with something that would work. So I had women write stories, first pleasures about real experiences that were erotic to them, because I thought, let's use real things as our basis for it, and then had women write stories. And I wrote another book, um, The Erotic Edge, which had um, male stories and female stories so that you could compare them. And those were the best written stories, I think. But now it's uh, a lot of fluidity of gender and, you know, male fantasies can be very much like female fantasies and vice versa. Well, I think there's a lot more openness, obviously, than there was before. And there's a lot more experimentation about um, roles. You know, I mean, even between 
the 70s and the 90s, there was, you know, men were taking care of children. And in there, there was a lot of development about emotions and that that was changing. They were becoming more equal roles that came as women's women's liberation. So there have been a lot of changes in the society over the years that have gotten to us where we are now. Yeah, I'm glad we touched on some of those changes. And we've uh, had, I think, a very productive and uh, illuminating conversation. Always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always great to talk to you, Michael. Dr. Lonnie Barback. And we are here with you uh, weekly and uh, remind you that uh, you can find out more about us and what we do and who we've talked to in past episodes and become a part of this growing community online uh, by simply going to our website. It's Gray Matter, and Gray is with, with, with an E, graymatter.show. Thank you so much. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.